friends. Welcome once again to the Chicagoland Yoga Teachers Podcast. My name is Paul Fowler, and today we speak with Suda Wexler. Suda Wexler is one of the uh, top teachers in Chicago, has been for so many years, has taught so many people, so many teachers out there teaching, uh, got their first experience or some of their deepest experience in yoga with Suda Wexler. Uh, he is the owner director of NU Yoga, which became the Chicago Yoga Center, which actually just recently closed its physical location, and now he's teaching mainly from home. So perhaps it gives people an opportunity to uh, take classes with Suda in a way that maybe they hadn't before. So uh, check that out. And uh, yeah, it's uh, the, now the, the vocal recording isn't so great on this one. Um, it's a little bit hard to hear him occasionally. You might have to turn it up a little bit, but trust me, it's worth it. It's a really uh, good interview. It's a fun interview. It was really enjoyable uh, for me and uh, the few people that I've had listened to, uh, you know, it in advance just to make sure that the vocal quality was good enough to put out there on the interwebs. And uh, so, yeah, um, please enjoy this wide-ranging interview with Suda Wexler. Suda, welcome to, to, the, to the interview, to the podcast. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah, it's so good to see you. Um, it's been a long yeah. time, and so many of your students I know and, and appreciate and have spoken so highly of you. So uh, it's an honor for me to have this opportunity. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, so first question. Uh, tell us about your, your path to yoga, how, how you found yoga, how yoga found you. Well, I think I was about 16 or 17. I was, I was in Austria, I born in Austria. And in uh, school, I found this book by, uh, I think it was a Swiss author, a book about yoga. So I was 16 years old, I, do, I started doing the asanas, and it sort of just, it just clicked. And I was mostly fascinated by the philosophy so the first some years I did the asanas from this book, I felt it was sort of, uh, I wasn't ready. I was not uh, really good in it because I was very stiff. I was 16. The other was in the 60s and I found, I found like, this is very strange. I'm a young man, you know, young guy, and I can do it. I didn't realize it's a process. But eventually that's how I started. So I did uh, some skaters very early. Read about the philosophy, read about the, uh, you know, the uh, other sort of uh, Eastern, um, other philosophies. And um, that's where it really started. So you started from, from reading a book, learning, reading. When did you find your first teacher? Well, I read this book, like in 66, 66, 66, 67. And I went to school in England. So in 68, I went to England to study. And while I was in England, you know, they were the Hare Krishnas, flower power, hippies, people come back from India. So my second sort of uh, wave came to this uh, exposure to uh, Indian culture while in England. And then really speaking, uh, I went back to Austria afterwards, went back to, uh, then I started working actually. So I working for computers for like six, seven years. And then in uh, 78, I was uh, fed up with, uh, you know, computer programming and uh, making a lot of money and blah, blah. And I went overland to India. So I, I quit my job, sold my belongings, kept my books, kept my records, and so on, the important stuff, really. 
and then travel to India overland. So from uh, you know Istanbul to uh, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. Well, how did you how did you get there? Did you uh, hitchhike or what? No, no, no. The hippie route, uh, magic bus. Huh. Uh, Istanbul to Ankara, Ankara to Marjat, you know, so Tehran to uh, Iran to Afghanistan. This was a uh, seventy-eight, so the uh, Shah was still in power. The Russian, the Russian government was already in, in Iran and all in, in Afghanistan, so there was a lot of, uh, you know, sort of uh, counter movements and political stuff going on. Basically, overland by buses mostly. It took me like a month. Wow. And when I arrived in Afghanistan after maybe six weeks or whatever, I felt like, wow, this is a different sort of experience. Eating with your hands, sitting on the floor, no electricity, you know. And I was like, wow, all I learned was basically out of the window. Different experience, very basic. Huh. And then I continued and came, came to India, I don't think maybe in the late of, uh, late of uh, 87. And then I traveled to India, lived in the Himalayas a little bit, went uh, South India and so on. And then I, while I was in India, I visited different temples, different uh, ashrams, and different uh, babas, you know, different uh, sadhus and so on, and got a lot of uh, information. But formerly, my teacher I met after my trip, after three years, when I went back to uh, Europe, actually. So you, so you spent three years in India, approximately. I was India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, mostly India. Got Sri Lanka, Nepal, you know, Mustang, Southern Tibet kind of thing, uh, Thailand, Indonesia. I did a whole sort of... Uh, it was a whole world trip. It took me like more than three years. But most of the time was in India, essentially, yeah? Because India was sort of a basically the homeland. I felt like the uh, karmic, if you will, connection. You know, the uh, past life or whatever it was, you know? And it felt like home, you know, very, very, very clearly, yeah? So what was, if you, do you have a story um, about your experience in India during that time? Yeah. There might be... Yeah. The first thing I remember was this. So we, I basically we took a, a train from, uh, from Pakistan to the border to India. And they were at war at the time. This was like 60, I think there was one in 71 or something, you know? But in 78, the uh, train tracks are different sizes. So the train from Pakistan would go to the border. I, went, I came from Lahore. We had to walk like maybe two miles to the Indian border. In Pakistan was sort of a very, was very heavy. You know, it wasn't my thing, so to speak. I came into India with my backpack, my sleeping bag and my thing, you know, and suddenly had this uh, deja vu experience. I'm home again. Mm. It felt like entering my house. I know where my light switch is. I know my door. I know the environment. I know how it feels, you know, the whole sort of a thing. This was very strong. So I felt like I'm home again. Mm. Mm. It was a very strong, very sort of very, very prominent experience. Yeah. Interesting. So, so why did you leave? So you were there for three years. What was the kind of like, what was the arc of that, that just at some point you decided to go back to? Well, I was basically, I was, I was uh, searching for, uh, you know, I was searching. I was searching. I was looking for something different. Mm -hmm. The uh, material stuff, you know, computer programming and whatever it was, you know, it wasn't satisfying. So I went on a quest to sort of find out what I'm going to do doing next. I was basically looking for, you know, questions and answers kind of thing, you know. 
So I searched, and then uh, while I was in India, you know, I picked up different books. I went to different ashrams. I did yoga in my own sort of uh, method and in my own sort of uh, way of life, and it sort of it just sort of uh, you know developed over on. I think I did a yang, I did a yanga yoga quite a bit. Mm. Were you? I don't know. Were you in Pune? Was that where where you were doing? I went to Pune, but when I went to Pune, I went to Rajneesh. So there was this Indian, I don't know if you know Rajneesh, Bhagwan Rajneesh. He was a big spiritual girl in the uh, 80s, 90s maybe. He even came to Oregon later on, I think. Yeah. Uh, so I was curious because many of my friends, you know, uh, people from Germany and other Europeans, they went into this uh, Bhagwan kind of thing, you know. And so I went to Pune and I went to his ashram. But I only stayed like two days. It was just too, too chaotic. <laughs> it was the same thing I did already, you know? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't really, I needed a really discipline, I needed a structure and a guidance, not just a, you know, <laughs> whatever. Free love. Free love. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay, so then you went back home, you went back to Denmark? Well, no, then I basically, I traveled, I kept uh, traveling, I bought a ticket in Bangkok at some point, and from Bangkok I went to uh, Korea, Japan, Hawaii, States, ended up in uh, uh, San Francisco, mm. went down to uh, San Diego, went to Mexico, Belize, Guatemala for like three months, and in the middle of uh, 81, I went back to Europe, because at that time, I felt I needed, uh, uh, I needed more guidance, not just in the asanas, but more like a real teacher, guru kind of thing, because I read all these books about yoga, you know, and so on. So I came back to Europe in 81, and the idea was go back to uh, Germany, that's where I lived before, uh, make money, go back to India to find a, a teacher. And while I was back in Germany living with friends, I saw this little booklet about this uh, yogi visiting from uh, India, his uh, disciples. And at that time, I was doing a Tantra yoga retreat, like a month-long Tantra immersion in Germany with a group of people. And then this one guy showed me this booklet, and I said, well, this sounds interesting. I want to see this man. It happened, he was actually in, uh, in, uh, in the uh, southern, he was in the Black Forest. So I went to the uh, Black Forest, visited his uh, ashram, basically, uh, met his uh, Indian guru, and it's just sort of, a, you know, it just clicked. It was like, this is it. It was like, how did you know? Like, what was the, what was the, I mean, is there a way to describe that knowing? Real teachers teach non-verbally. Mm. Non-verbally. What's necessary. It's like, that's the Shakti. It's like the energy. It just sort of, uh, it just takes you, you know? So there was a linear thinking because I was very, I was, I was always very sort of logical minded. You know? But this was sort of a, like um, emotional, spiritual, just sort of intuitive. And then it just felt this was it. This was the uh, teacher, guru I have been uh, looking for, essentially. Mm-hmm. So I stayed there for like a month, checked him out. He checked me out, you know. I did satsanga, kirtan, yoga practices on. And then after some days, maybe after a week or so, I asked him if he would accept me as a, as a, as a disciple, as a, as a student. Mm. And first he refused. Of course. Because he said, you have, a, you, have a, you have a tantric guru. You're coming from a tantric you know, thing, and so you, you want to make sure what you're going to do, you know? 
And then I said, no, I want to be more, you know, I want to be a disciple, I want to be a student. So he accepted me, gave me a mantra teacher, mantra initiation, got my mantra, you know. And basically, I uh, started this uh, sort of a spiritual journey with uh, very organized and many sort of uh, developments. And say, say, say his name. Uh, say his name. Uh, Swami Narayanananda. Narayanananda. You were initiated into his lineage. When, once you did that, and you, you had experienced so many other teachings and teachers, and um, did you feel like in being initiated into that particular lineage that you had to maybe even for a while like put on some blinders so that you were able to be clear and true to the things that he was teaching and didn't get that it all confused with all the other teachings or or not absolutely so i mean all this stuff i knew about yoga was all basically was all just out of the books there was all sort of a theory you know, and uh, translation of ideas through books and other media. But uh, when you meet somebody who represents the teachings and the person, you know, a lot of this sort of uh, mental stuff falls away because uh, there's somebody who embodies, you know, the uh, achievements of yoga. And so uh, I was basically going back to basics and uh, doing, you know, doing basically stuff which yoga sort of proposes, living a simple life, in a monastic environment, you know, basically living in celibacy, brahmacharya, you know, uh, reducing your sensory pleasures. It's a very simple monastic sort of, uh, you know, training, essentially. Were you in a particular physical location doing this training? Were you wearing yeah. robes? Was that part of it too? So basically, uh, when I met him, I met him in Germany, as I said before. And after I met him, I went, he, he, spent three, he was spending three months in Denmark. There was a free yoga camp for anybody in uh, Denmark, no cost, no money. So I went to Denmark for three months after I met him. And then I stayed in this uh, ashram, basically living in a tent for the next three months. Mm. And then I decided, uh, I want to make sannyasa. So I want to become a monk, essentially. So in 82, I took a sannyasa. He gave me my name, Sudanand. That's my, you know, Indonesian name. And then uh, after that, I went back to uh, Germany because some of his uh, disciples lived in an ashram in, uh, in Germany. So that's why I lived for like two years afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you were kind of like immersed into the lineage as a sannyasa for two years? No, no, that's, I got the initiation in 82. Okay. And I lived in Germany for like two years in the ashram. But uh, we would go in the summertime, we would go to uh, Denmark because he would come and visit. I see. Uh, Swamiji would come every summer for like three or four or five months. He would come to Germany to visit his uh, disciples. He go to Denmark for like three months for the spiritual yoga camp. So we would go and visit you know, every summer from uh, June to whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And then uh, basically in uh, 84, I was in Denmark again because he was back from India. And then I go to uh, Satsang, I go to, uh, you know, to meet in the morning. And one day he said, well, we need somebody in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> really? He said that? He said it, yeah. He said, okay. I, I, go. I go, you know. I had done my uh, yoga teacher training course in Denmark, in Germany mostly, mostly in Denmark actually, a two-year program, you know, over time. And at that time I was finished with my Hatha yoga teacher training course. 
And then uh, basically there was uh, an old student of his living in Chicago. And this man was about to be retiring from his uh, corporate job. Mm. And he wanted to open up a yoga center or a yoga school or an ashram. And I came to Chicago basically to teach hot uh, yoga, essentially. Huh. Yeah. And then I lived on Southport for like, well, from 84 to 91, essentially. On Southport Avenue, we had a small, we had a very small ashram. Girls lived, uh, third floor, boys lived on the second floor, boys and girls divided because we are still, you know, you know monks and nuns. And I was teaching downstairs in the uh, uh, first floor yoga. And that's how I met Mary Kulowski, for example. Oh, wow. <laughs> and other people, yeah. Amazing. So, wow, what a path to get to Chicago. <laughs> what an interesting journey. Uh, I, I didn't know. Do I come for one year, two years? I had no idea. Sure. I had traveled so much before. So I was thinking, well, you know, I want to teach yoga anyway. And then Chicago sounded interesting. So it became, you know, 35 years or whatever <laughs> or more. <laughs> so, so... When you got here, like you, you, um, you opened the NU Yoga Center in 84, right? So that was like pretty much right when you arrived or pretty soon after you arrived, yes? Two weeks after I arrived. I okay. came in the middle of September, October 1st. I started my first class. It was like 6, 7.30 p.m. to 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Mm. I was teaching uh, Wednesdays. I was teaching Monday and Wednesday, and then uh, Saturday and Thursday, so I sort of expanded very slowly, and very few students in the beginning. They're like five classes, $48, very inexpensive, uh, mostly, uh, well, some students, housewives, lawyers, you know, uh, different, different kind of people, yeah. So, so when you were here and started the center, you were still sannyasa, you were still kind of like living a monk like yeah. life, yes? How challenging or not was that to do that in Chicago in with all the kind of new people that were coming into your center and things like that? Like what was that, what was yes, that process for you? Yeah. Very, very difficult, very difficult. You know, because you live in a very sort of sensual pleasures everywhere kind of thing. So it was difficult. So the, at that time, I think it was maybe five or six living in this uh, building. It was like, like four guys, maybe three or four girls. And then uh, slowly, slowly, sort of uh, it started shifting. People moved out, you know, some people got married. People left. I was the only one left, basically, and then in 91, we sold the building, essentially. And I moved to Evanston. And then I rented a space on Lincoln Avenue, just across basically the corner of where I used to live before, and opened up the uh, yoga center. You know, just switched the yoga center to a different location, essentially. What was the thing that like kind of changed your path so that you kind of moved to a more layman kind of? Well, I mean, I like people. I I I like to be introverted. I can be secluded, but also like people. You know, and by teaching yoga, you're exposed to uh, a lot of different students and so on. So my question was, do I go back to the monastery, go, do I go back to Nashram with his inclusion? Or do I teach and share with other mm -hmm. people? And that's what I basically chose, essentially. I kept my practices, 
but uh, decided to stay, you know, in Chicago and uh, keep doing what I did, essentially. Yeah. So since you were, you're one of the few people I feel like that actually te- or was actually trained in, I don't know, maybe even more of a philosophical yogic tradition. All yoga traditions are philosophical, right? They all have the aspects of, but oftentimes those aren't highlighted in people's trainings, right? Mm-hmm. Did you, um, as a person that was like, from the very, you know, from the time you were 16, it sounds like you were attracted to yoga philosophy. Did you have to make a choice as to how to teach your subject? What, how, how much of the philosophical aspect of yoga you decide to teach? How much of the physical asana? You know, where did you play with that idea? We teach according to, uh, to according to needs. So we teach a regular class, a public class. Now we go and do philosophy because people don't really know about it or don't know about it. Mostly in uh, teacher training courses. So I started, get, I started training teachers in, uh, I think it was 92, you know, teacher training courses. And then you go into the philosophy, yoga, Advaita Vedanta, what the other schools of philosophy and so on, you know. So depending on uh, curiosity and uh, maybe student level, if you will. So you have to sort of uh, fine tune whatever, you know, is, uh, is, is necessary, whatever should be shared. I was basically living a certain lifestyle and to maintain my lifestyle, I had to teach. I had to make money to be alive, you know? So I needed to teach anyway. So it became basically something I liked. I was able to share and make sort of a profession out of it. And it was through the medium of a Hatha Yoga, essentially. Yeah? Got it, got it. The philosophy, that stuff sort of was uh, not secondary, but it was not as prominent, if you will. While I was in Chicago, I learned about Iyengar Yoga quite a bit. Another bit of Shanga yoga quite a bit later on in my professional development. Everything sort of a blended into, uh, into something. So if you could um, kind of crystallize the teaching of the, I guess you'd say the Vedanta teachings, right? Would you say they're Vedanta teachings? Yeah. Um, that the, uh, if you could kind of like crystallize them, if that's even possible, um, and maybe explain how they might be different in some way than maybe other, uh, other lineages. Basically, if you look at uh, Raja Yoga, Ashtanga Yoga, the eight limbs of Panchanjali. So uh, Raja Yoga, Ashtanga Yoga is a holistic tradition. There's a, a, a deity, there's a force, there's a power. It's called Ishvara, God something, you know, and there's the practitioner. So there's me and there's this other sort of uh, entity. In uh, This is in yoga, okay? In Advaita Vedanta, it's a non-dualistic orientation. Right. There's only one thing. And this one thing is everything. So uh, Praman equals Atman. The uh, universal self, Praman, it's the same as the Atman, the, the individual self, essentially. So would you say that uh, the uh, Atman arises from the Brahman, or would you just not even, not even say, well, that, that, would, that would suggest two things, right? So it's... Okay. Yeah, yeah. So in the Advaita Vedanta, it's only one thing. It's exists everywhere. 
manifests, you know, in galaxies, in universes, in insects, in grass, and universes and planets and whatever, you know, human beings. Uh, the essence is all-pervading. How it manifests depends on, uh, you know, other conditions, essentially. Right. So the uh, consciousness in the rock, in the stone, is different than the uh, consciousness in the human being, for example. But the essence is the same, mm. you know? So this is uh, divided at Hunter. This was basically my goal, sort of, I was uh, proposing. This was, this was his lineage, yeah? Mm-hmm. But in, really speaking, uh, in his teachings, he sort of uh, linked or merged almost yoga with Advaita Vedanta. Because in Advaita Vedanta, there's no practices, except uh, discrimination, you know, in other methods. But in yoga, you have the asanas, you have uh, pratyahara, pranayam, you know, and all the other sort of uh, steps to uh, make your uh, living condition better, to better yourself, if you will. So it's not just a philosophy or discrimination, but also you put it as a tool to uh, experience, you know, reality. So the asanas and to other sort of uh, modalities, in essence, yeah? Got it. This is useful because uh, we all are physically oriented, you know? I mean, just reading a book and discriminating is difficult, but if you use uh, something which gives you access, if you use your body as an instrument to test mental states or consciousness, it's easier, I find, than just speculating or, uh, you know, mentally sort of digesting stuff. Do you also read scripture? Is there like some basic texts that you refer to regularly in order to kind of like connect uh, that way? was one of the uh, most important teachers in Advaita Vedanta, Shankaracharya, you know? But there's a lot of, I mean, there's tons of texts out there. But in the end, you know, it's really about practice. Mm-hmm. That's what I learned in the ashram, for example. You know, you can read and speculate and create all this sort of uh, mental sort of uh, stuff, you know? But in the end, it has, to, it has to be embodied. You have to sort of experience it. You have to sort of adjust it, test it, do it, mm-hmm. practice it. Otherwise, it's like, it's meaningless, yeah? And um, being in, the, in an environment which sort of promoted this sort of uh, possibilities was very helpful, you know? So meditating with other people was helpful, the asanas, you know, and so on. So it's basically you have to... Uh, take information and basically apply it to a daily living, in essence. When you look out into the world, how, like, what, what do you see? I know this is a very funny question. How do, you, how do you perceive, when you look out your window, how do you perceive the world out there? Is there, is that, is that, does that make sense, that question at all? Yeah. Well, I can decide I can be happy, or I can be sad, or I can be depressed. So I, have to, I can set my mind into a certain position, and that's how I experience whatever goes out on there. So in the Advaitas, in the Advaitas they say that mind projects the universe. So there's no reality. Your mind creates your own reality. You make yourself depressed or happy or sad or angry or anxious. It's your own makings. There's external factors which are imposed on you, so to speak. But the end, you know, it's your own sort of, uh, you choose, essentially. And this basically takes us into our yoga, one-minded concentration, skillful attention, mm-hmm. awareness. Yeah? And that's basically, so when you look out of the window, or rather, 
try to be happy, you know, and content and open instead of uh, closed and depressed and whatever, you know, essentially. Yeah? And then, and then one, so you realize that. So what does, what, what are the practices that you use in order to understand that in order to overcome it maybe, or put, put it into some kind of, I mean, maybe you already, maybe this is obviously it's just like very quick for you because you have that wisdom, but for like, if you were to be with a beginner that you were trying to explain that concept to, or give them a practice in order to understand that concept, how would, how would you do that? It's learning, it's learning to how to, how to work, how, how to recondition themselves. Because the most is sort of uh, doing stuff instinctively out of habit, out of condition. So these uh, spiritual practices are basically uh, methods to sort of uh, reprogram yourself, you know, to become conscious. So doing something on a yoga mat makes you conscious. You become aware of your knee or your hip or your thigh muscle, or your arms muscles, or your breathing, or your mental states. So doing something in a, on a yoga mat, for example, a practice, asana, helps you to become focused and integrated and one-pointed. And then with time, you can apply the same sort of, uh, you know, awareness to the external sort of environment, how you read your papers, how you look, you know, the things and how you live your life, essentially. So sort of uh, becoming sort of a conscious, aware, mindful, essentially. Mm. So a form of practice, but also through a daily sort of a living, you know? I mean, it's a little bit of 20 hours away almost. What's that? Um, but we, we, we can be either unconscious and conditioned and uh, just sort of reacting to, to certain patterns, or we can make a certain, a certain decision willfully, you know, and decide so and so, yeah? I think this is something what yoga sort of uh, presents to the uh, practitioner. So let's, just to kind of like make a little turn here, um, you know, I want to speak to the current moment, the growing awareness, I guess, of inequality in this country and, and Black Lives Matter movement and all that, like, is there a, a yogic response to that that you, like, do you feel like that is a, or, or what, what's your thoughts on that as far as the yoga response? Well, we are responsible for ourselves, essentially. We all have, we all have our own karma, you know? But there's also group karma, if you will. So we participate with ourselves and our, our fellow beings and the, uh, the universe, so to speak. So as a yogi, you have to be patient and you have to have, uh, you know, compassion, obviously, and you want to make things better. But to do so, you have to start with yourself mm. at some point. Mm. And then by doing it and doing it yourself, then maybe you influence and you stimulate stuff out of the periphery, if you will, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. So... This way, I think I, I look at the situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel with people, you know, I help and I can, but I have to also, you know, reflect upon myself. Yeah, you know I mean, I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I've, I've had this thought recently that, you know, institutions are created by people. Mm-hmm. And if regardless, even if we mandate certain institutions to be a certain way, if they're still built by people and those people are still have a certain level of 
you know, lack of a cultivation, I guess, of, mm-hmm. or a lack of an understanding of their own mind. <laughs> um, and to recognize where their blind spots are, where their racism is, all that sort of thing, that, that the institutions can't help but be somehow, well, certainly not what they could be, but maybe even somewhat uh, corrupt or something like that, because the minds that created it were not clear in some way. It looks like there's a quantum shift. There's a big shift happening. Yeah. Not just with the environment, but also, you know, I mean, also socially. So something is happening, which is good. So people have to wake up, you know, and something is sort of uh, put into motion, and we'll see what the outcome will be. Mm-hmm. But something is definitely shifting with this whole, you know, current situation, which is, the way things are, it's gonna happen again. <laughs> it's like, it's a process, mm. yeah. not the end. Yeah. Right, not the end. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the end, how do you work with death in your practice, in your lineage? Is there a specific way of understanding, a specific way of approaching, of teaching that subject? I think when Mr. Yenga said at some point and somebody asked him, somebody asked him, why do you do yoga with Mr. Yenga? I think it was in England. And he said, I do yoga because I'm preparing for death. I want to I wanna die a very good death, so to speak. That was his answer, you know? So um, I believe in our personal reincarnation. So there's no end really, it's just a process. You know, things change. And the essence doesn't really disappear, if you will, you know. But circumstances change, you know. So uh, it's my understanding, it's my experience at least, you know. Mm-hmm. So the end of something is the beginning of something new. It's just a different uh, forms of uh, elements. But the essence doesn't really go away. I mean, it's, where, should, where should it go? Yeah? Mm. So my, my teacher said at some point, he said that uh, in this universe, you cannot remove even one single atom. The total sum of energy is always the same. It just changes form and shape and names, essentially. So number rupa change, name and form change, but not you know, the energy, the essence, consciousness. It's always the same. Okay, good. Well, do you have any, uh, we're going to wrap up here, but do you have any like last uh, words you want to share with uh, with huge worldwide audience that will be will be listening and appreciating this, uh, this interview? <laughs> I, I thank you for doing this call. It was a pleasure talking to you and hopefully sharing some information. And uh, well, I am now, basically I'm teaching now on Zoom. So no more formal teachings in the yoga schools or whatever, but on Zoom, and I think that's going to be the uh, next um, months or years, it's going to be a different sort of, uh, you know, exposure to uh, to your teaching of yoga and uh, related sort of uh, modalities. Yeah, how does it feel to, um, after all these years, to have, to, for NU to, you know, no longer be the place that you go to to teach yoga? Uh, it's liberating. Instead of being a businessman and a yogi, I'm only a yogi. I go from my office up to my yoga room, each, say hello, go by, and go, you know, I don't have to drive, I don't have to park, look for the environment, less pollution, less stress, less anger driving a car for myself, you know. So I think it's, uh, in some ways, I miss the analog experience. 
I mean, when you're in a group of people, there's energy, you know, you exchange energies, mm -hmm. you know, prana, energy, life force, vitality. Uh, virtually, it's missing. You're talking to a piece of aluminum, aluminum, you know, like a screen, you know. So some of these are pranic, energetic sort of verification uh, is uh, missing to some extent. You can feel this uh, stronger, if you will. But uh, that's just how it is. That's that we have. That's what we have now. At least, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's a learning process. And as you, as always, if you do something for a little longer, it gets easier. So I can handle one hour easily. Three hours. It's a bit more stressful. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, this is a whole new realignment of, uh, of, of how yoga is being presented in the world right now. It's really interesting. I just finished my teacher training course online last Saturday. And it was definitely a different experience. You can really see people that well. Your fine-tuning, your adjustments are sort of, uh, you know, there's a... Uh, Great, you know, but overall it worked somehow. But only do it on Zoom or on a virtual platform, I think it's limiting, it's limiting in the end at some point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm happy to go back to an analog sort of uh, environment at some point. Yeah, well, hopefully, uh, well, we'll see. We'll see, we'll see what happens, right? Yeah. Patience and, uh, you know, taking day by day, moment by moment. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Suda, it's been really a pleasure to get to know you and uh, hear some of your story and, and just uh, kind of revel in the, uh, in the words that you have to offer. So thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Namaste. Namaste. Namaste.